0: Well, when you think about speaking in tongues, what comes to mind for you? For some of you who may have grown up in a denomination or in a church where that was normal, you may picture that happening in the church service and being a normal part of your worship. For some of you who that's not the case, you may picture that same scene, but maybe it's a little scarier for you. Or maybe you think of some weirdos you saw in a movie once. For me, what I think of is I I think of a man who mentored me in high school whose name was Josh, and he was one of the godliest men that I knew, and he was a man's man, and he was kind of everything I wanted to be, and so I I really idolized him and looked up to him, and I remember at one point where he told me about speaking in tongues, and he said, well, I speak in tongues, and I was kind of thrown off by that because I thought, well, that's just something weirdos and crazy people do. Now, I don't know what to do with this (laughs) because... I have a lot of respect for you. I really like you. And now it's either you're weird and crazy or I just kind of hurt my brain. Didn't know what to do with that. And I remember what he said too is, well, it's not just I speak in tongues. I think all Christians should do this. I think you should be able to do this. And so that really forced me to go and say, well, I guess I need to go read my Bible some more because I got to figure this out. How can somebody that I know deeply loves Jesus and is very godly and righteous think something that I just think is crazy? I'm going to have to go back to God's Word and look at this. And so that's what we're going to do this morning, is we're just going to wrestle and try and get a biblical understanding of what are the sign gifts. Particularly in chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians, Paul spends most of his time talking about speaking in tongues, and he talks about prophecy. Um, But when we talk about the sign gifts, we're also talking about, you know, words of knowledge is another one, or the ability to heal. It's kind of all of these things are wrapped up in one. And so, I just want us to look at God's Word, to hear it speak to us, and to dare to ask, well, what does it mean, and what does it actually say? So, this morning, that's what we're going to look at. Um, So, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians um, chapter 14, and just like we prayed, we are going to get to hear the Word of God speak. Just as we hear his word read. Uh, you, you can stay seated. This is a longer chapter, so I won't make you stand for it. But we are going to read it so we can hear God's voice. First Corinthians 14: Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding encouragement and consultation and the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself but the one who prophesies builds up the church now i want you all to speak in tongues but even more to prophesy the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up now brothers and sisters if i come to you speaking in tongues how will i benefit you unless i bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I don't know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret, for if I pray in the tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Well, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but also I will pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. For if I give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of outsider say Amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, even I will speak this to my people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers, enter, will they not say, you are out of your minds?" But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted and he is called into account by all. For the secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be one or two at most, three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. For revelation is made to another sitting there. Let the first be silent. You can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. For the spirits of prophecies are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And as in all the churches, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. This the law also says If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it to you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, brothers and sisters, eagerly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that you would open your word to us. Lord, I thank you that we have the ability to hear your voice spoken every Sunday, and every day that we choose to open and read your word. Lord, I pray that we would be listening this morning, not to my words, but to your words, Jesus. But would your Holy Spirit open our hearts, would he loosen our ears, and would you give us the ability to hear what it is you have to tell us from your word. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, so point number one, we're going to talk about tongues first. And what we'll see in your notes is that tongues edify the individual, but worship should edify the body. So tongues edify the individual, but worship should edify the body. So first, it might be helpful to define or explain, well, what is speaking in tongues? What what do you even mean by that? Some of you may be more familiar, some of you may be less than, some are somewhere in between. Well, this is one of the difficulties that it comes when even talking about speaking in tongues because Scripture itself describes it in a number of different ways. There's a lot of different options. There's a lot of different ways that speaking in tongues is used. And so you can't really... I don't think you can just say, well, speaking in tongues is blank. Well, it's not always blank. It's also sometimes this one. The first thing that it is, is tongues primarily, most often the way Paul seems to use it is appears to be speaking about prayer. It's some kind of unintelligible speech or babbling, much like if you're here early and see Calvin running around and causing a ruckus. He's talking more, but there's still plenty of babbling, and that's kind of what tongues is, at least audibly. It sounds like a child babbling, or not like a child, just something you don't understand. But verse 2 tells us, you know, for the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. Well, that's prayer. When someone is doing that, they're not talking to you or me, they're talking just to God, That's why no one else can understand him. He's uttering mysteries in the spirit. So this is why some, when they're talking about speaking in tongues, will refer to it kind of as their private prayer language. Because they're acknowledging, well, this is just between me and God. I know you don't understand what I'm saying. I don't understand what I'm saying, but God understands. That's what I'm doing here. So that's the first thing that it is. And some will say, you know, maybe it's an angelic tongue. But, you know, I don't know. I don't think people either know either. Scripture is still a little unclear. Another thing that speaking in tongues is, is it's speaking in a known language. It's their instances where the person who is speaking in tongues and then somebody else comes in the room and it's another language, but it's a language they know. And to them, it doesn't sound like speaking in tongues. It just sounds like they're hearing their own language. This is what happens at Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit descends for the first time on the 12 apostles and in the 500, in the upper room, or the 120, I think, and then they all go out and they're speaking in tongues and there's a massive crowd who's made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem and all of them from all over the world and all of their different languages, and, but yet all of them can understand what's being said. And they're confused, like, wow, how, how do they speak my language I, thought I was the only one here from that? And that is at least part of what speaking in tongues is. So that's another example. And the last example of what it is, is it appears to be a kind of prophetic speech, at least when it's interpreted. So when it's just no one knows what it is, it's a private prayer language. When someone who is a foreigner knows what it is, it's clearly their tongue, and it's their language, their understanding. But then if someone speaks and no one knows what it is, and someone stands up and says, well, I understood what that is. Let me interpret that for you. Then that is when whatever that speaking in tongues was is now prophetic speech. And even though it sounded like gibberish to one, now that it's been interpreted, it's something else. What I mean by prophetic speech is saying, okay, well, here is a prophecy from God. They didn't know what they were saying, but I do. And here's what God says, which is why so often Paul kind of hits over and over and says, hey, this should be interpreted. This should be interpreted. This should be interpreted when you're in church because it's prophetic speech. This is important. You all need to hear what this is. So in this instance, tongues is really an instance of prophecy, but nobody understands it yet until it's interpreted. So that's kind of a general idea of what I think speaking in tongues is. But so what do we do with that? How do we we worship with it? If tongues is still around, which we'll get to that in a moment, but let's assume that it is for a moment. Well, how should that happen in the church? How should this happen in the church in Corinth? Well, the first thing is it needs to be edifying. Because, yes, especially tongues, primarily the way he talks about it, Paul does, is, hey, I'm glad I I pray in tongues all the time. I pray way more than all of you in 10,000 words. But, you know, what's more important is you hear me speak. So, because that's just building myself up. In verse 4, the one who speaks in the tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies build up the church. He's saying, look, tongues is primarily just edifying you, and it's strengthening your relationship with God, but that's not really helping me in my relationship with God, so that's not that useful on Sunday, because Sunday's not about you, it's about the church. It's about all of us. So, what's happening is the church in Corinth seems to be just kind of awash or overwhelmed with speaking in tongues. There's probably some difference, not a lot of difference between some charismatic churches or a Pentecostal, if you picture one, if you're not used to it, okay, and you, when you come to your mind, a Pentecostal church, and you just think, well, I'm going to go in there, it's going to be 50 people all speaking in tongues, and someone's going to be running laps, and there's going to be tambourines, and flags, and there's this kind of stuff. I've been in churches like that. I've been in churches like that a while, so that you may think that. That's kind of what the church in Corinth is doing. Okay, they, they are doing this. They are speaking in tongues all the time. Everybody is doing it. They're talking over each other. They're kind of competing to see who's the best, the most important. And so that's what's happening. And Paul has a problem with that. And that's why he rebukes them. He said, hey, knock this off, guys. You're missing the point. This isn't what you're supposed to do with these. And the church in Corinth is really impressed with their own gifts. They're going, oh man, look, I'm speaking in tongues. Aren't I impressive? And Paul says, yeah, you know what's more impressive? If you actually help somebody grow closer to Jesus, that's more impressive. I'm not impressed with your stuff. And so that's why Paul would rather them just stop speaking in tongues altogether. That's why verse 4 again, he says, look, when you're doing this, you're just building yourself up, but prophecy is building up the rest of the church. Sunday morning, the gifts that we use charismatic or otherwise, are meant for edifying the entire church. They are not just meant to edify you. They're not just meant to edify me. They're not just meant to be your personal talent show to show off or use your abilities. It's for all of us to grow. But so, how, how should tongues be used in the church if it is still around? Well, it has to be interpreted in the body. That's why Paul repeats it over and over and over. He says, look, you need to have this interpreted. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind to instruct others than 10,000 other words in a tongue. And he goes further in 1 Corinthians thirteen twenty-eight to tell them, look, if you're not going to have it interpreted, you need to just shut up. You need to be silent. Or keep silent is what he says. 13.28. Let, if there is no one to interpret, let each of them, everyone who thinks they can speak in tongues, all of them need to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and speak to God. He's not saying don't. He's saying, well, hey, if, if no one's interpreting it, then it's clearly just prayer that's clearly just between you and God and then you just need to be quiet. You need to stop. So, so any time... And what this means, this this is one of the funny things for me, is for for those who will say, yes, like the tongues is normative, this is still around, which again, we're going to hit that in just a second, and we'll say, well, look at God's Word. It doesn't say that it goes away anywhere, so this should be normal. Read God's Word. Say, yes, okay, well, let's also look at God's Word. He says, if it's not interpreted, that you need to be quiet. So let's not just cherry pick the pieces of God's Word that we like, which we all do. We all need to admit to that. But so anytime you're doing that, and it's not interpreted, you're not obeying Paul's command. So here is the main question, I guess, is this. So what do we do? Should people be speaking in tongues? Do the sign gifts still, are they still around, or are they not? Well, like anything, people have different opinions, right? But there's also, there's different biblical positions that people can hold, A lot of what we've talked about, right? We had those three chapters, one after another, about Christian freedom. And we just talked over and over how Christians, there are things that we disagree about. There are things like, I'll think one thing and you'll think something else. But as long as we're agreeing on the gospel and we're both interpreting the Bible and there's guardrails, then we're we're okay. But so there's there's different positions. There's really kind of three general positions that I'm going to talk about. And I'd imagine that many of our church are probably all over the spectrum on this. And there's definitely some nuance and little differences, even in these three different camps, but just for time's sake, I'm not going to spend forever on this. I'm just going to talk generally about them. So the first position is usually called cessationism, or just tongues has ceased. That's kind of a big fancy word. We like to do that in theology. We come up with big $5 words that then we then have to define and explain. But cessationism, it's just so tongues is, is done. And this comes from, generally, from 1 Corinthians 13, we talked about it last week, in the beginning in 13.8, right, Paul says, love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will pass away, and as for tongues, they will cease. So all of us, too, all of these positions, all three of them, every believer believes that one day we will not speak in tongues anymore, one day we will not prophesy anymore. The only question is, when did that day come? Has that day already come Is that day here, is that day in the future? And so they they will take this primarily then, so we're all disagree we just disagree on the when. And so the when comes in ten, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So those who are cessationists will say, Well, part of this, the perfect coming, that's God's word. Now that we have received God's word, we don't need the sign gifts anymore. They'll point to Jesus, how the the sign gifts and the miracles are used to validate his ministry, to prove he's the Messiah, to prove he's the Son of God. And the same thing with the disciples so that everyone could kind of know, wow, God must be here because look at all these miracles that are happening and they didn't have all of God's word yet, right? The church in Corinth, they're, they're getting this letter for the first time. So when they got it, the church in Ephesus hadn't got it yet. They had to wait a while. So this is why it's more common. But now, after the apostles all died out and after God's word is finished, now the sign gifts can kind of fade away and they disappear. That's generally um, that position. You know, and it's a legitimate biblical biblical position. There's nothing wrong with that. I I don't fully buy that because I think it's just a stretch to say in 10, well, the perfect coming, that's got to be God's word. So just, well, I mean, you you read the rest of it, and it seems more like that's when Jesus comes again. It seems like it's kind of the end. It's also talking about knowledge passing away. So I, I, you know, I can't, I'm not fully over there, but it's a good argument. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, so you have cessationism over here, no more tongues anywhere. And then over here, you have the other side of the spectrum, which would be kind of like the normative position. This is saying, no, speaking in tongues is not just still around, but also it's for everyone and everybody should be doing it. Every single believer has the ability to be speaking in tongues. This is normal. And so they will point to the book of Acts and say, well, look, if you just read the book of Acts and you're a new Christian, you're not going to think this is over. And they'll say, well, look, every time somebody comes to faith in Jesus, even the previous Jewish believers, they get baptized in the Holy Spirit, and then what are they doing? They're immediately speaking in tongues. I'll point to Paul in his own words here, where he just repeatedly says, hey, I wish all of you, in verse 5, I want all of you to speak in tongues. I wish all of you would do this. And say, well, it seems like Paul wants us to all do it, so we should all be doing it. Now, I think this one goes too far, again, because it's, Paul just spent all of chapter 12 telling us not everybody gets every gift. And he says explicitly, not everybody gets to speak in tongues. Not everybody gets to prophesy. There are some things that you get and some things that I get. I might wish I had what you got, but I I don't. I have something else. But I I also do think we have to acknowledge that the, the sign gifts do appear to have kind of faded as you go through church history. They're very prevalent in Acts, but then even after that, they slowly start fading away. They're not necessarily as common. They're, I mean, they don't completely go away, I don't think, but they're not present to the same intensity. So the last position is kind of a, a middle road of this spectrum. and This is more where I'm at, so this can sometimes be called the continuous view, or open but cautious um, is a good description. And so what I think, or another middle road between it, is, you know, I don't think the sign gifts are over, but also they're not for everybody. Because, well, it seems like they're not for everybody, and I'm not sure that they're all gone. But the cautious part of that is, well, let's submit to God's Word. If you're going to do it, let's have it interpreted. What I've noticed, because I've spent many years in charismatic circles, and I love my charismatic brothers and sisters, I'm very indebted to them. They've shaped my opinions on worship greatly. Um, but I noticed they, they really believe that God's gifted people the ability to speak in tongues, but they don't really focus much on that interpretive part. That was a little trickier. <laughs> So I just have to want to, you know, I I believe you. I I think this is real, but I don't think it's as prevalent as you might believe that it is. Um, So that's kind of the the middle way between there. Um, Again, you can disagree with me. We're going to disagree with each other in this room. If I took a poll, we're not going to raise hands. Um, But that's okay. What we have to do is we have to look at God's Word. We have to read it. We have to wrestle with it. And we have to see, well, what does God say? Because I could be wrong. We need to remember that. So that's um, that's speaking in tongues. Because the important thing here again is that Paul doesn't want it to be happening in worship because worship is about edifying the Bible. It is it's about edifying the church, the whole body through the Bible, through the gifts. And if we're just focused on ourselves, we're missing the point on why we gather in the first place. There's a reason that gathering together is important. If it wasn't important, we would just say, you know what? Hey, COVID taught us we don't ever need to gather together again. We're just going to sell the building. We're going to do this all online forever. We don't even need to see each other anymore. But no, no, no. Wait, that's not a, this is actually important. There's something significant that happens when we come together. Anyway, so that, that's one. Point number two, talking about prophecy, is that prophecy speaks for God but should be evaluated. Prophecy speaks for God, but should be evaluated. So, what is prophecy? Kind of a definition here. Really, I think my personal definition of prophecy is that it is speaking like on behalf of God. It is saying, standing up and saying, thus says the Lord. God told me, blank. And you can, that is from God. That's not from me. Well, not my definition, but that's, that's, how, it, that's how it is. That's kind of how prophecy is used. And that's why we have to be careful with prophecy. So I am unwilling like some others, and the cessationist view will say, because prophecy pops up so often, they'll just say, well, preaching and prophecy are the, the same thing, basically the same. So you take a spiritual gift test, they you were taking one of those, and maybe it told you, hey, you have the gift of prophecy, because you filled out some questions, and you go, wait a second, uh, I don't know about that, I haven't prophesied anything, I don't think I'm a prophet. Um, and that's why I think we have to be a little careful with it. I don't think it's exactly the same thing. And we also have to be careful, because it's a dangerous thing to declare that God has spoken. It's a dangerous thing to get, to get up here like I do every week. That's why I will be judged greater than any of you on the last day because I, I'm up here saying and trying to explain God's word. But when you go a further step and I say, hey, God spoke to me last night and here is exactly what you need to do. Okay, if that, that's scary because if that's really from God, you need to obey it. And if you don't obey it, you're in trouble. If it's not from God, then I'm in trouble because I just said I was speaking for God. Now, there are some similarities um, with prophecy and preaching, but they are different. What what I believe preaching is, is preaching is just explaining the previous revelation from God. Think of Ezra, when they built the temple again, and then they opened up God's Word, and they read it all. Okay, you might think that I read too much because I just read a chapter. Well, they read all of Genesis through Deuteronomy. So, they had to sit through all of Leviticus kind of in, in one go. And then what happened after that? Well, then they got up and they explained it. I think that's what preaching is. That's why we read God's Word in large sections like that because I don't think preaching is me telling you anything. It's just I'm going to read what God said and then I'm going to try and explain it so you can understand what it means. I'm not going to tell you anything else. I'm just trying to go through it. And so it's more focused on explaining God's revelation than giving new revelation. But like all prophecy is preaching, right, because it's speaking for God. It's explaining what God has said. But not all preaching is prophetic. Prophecy is preaching because it's telling us the things of God. Some preaching can become prophetic, can be, when it's speaking God's revelation. If, if really, if I'm standing up at moments like sometimes I have and say, hey, you know what? I really think as a church, God wants us to blank. There's a sense in which that's prophetic. Or I'm daring to say that this is what God has said. So I don't think that happens all the time, but sometimes that does. So how should this happen? How should if people are prophesying or, or giving a revelation from God, saying, God has revealed this to me, I want to tell you about it. Well, one at a time. That's the end. Kind of 26 through the end. This, Paul hits us. He did the same thing with tongues. You all need to speak one at a time. 27. There should be maybe three at most. 29, two or three prophets should speak and the others weigh what is said. And 31, you can all prophesy one by one which is kind of funny. In 32, and the spirits of prophets are not subject, or are subject to the prophets. He's saying, you don't get to use God as an excuse for it. you got to talk over each other. <laughs> God's a God of order. He spoke to you, and he spoke to one other one. Then God knows how long someone else had to speak, so you can wait your turn. This is okay. And so three at most. Not everybody gets to stand up and give their opinion on prophecy. This also seems to mean the Holy Spirit can control himself. Okay, he's not crazy. He's not going off, filling everybody up with all sorts of things. But the important thing as it comes to prophecy, again, is that prophecy needs to be evaluated and judged by Scripture. And this is also true of preaching. Think, every single time somebody stands up or somebody tells you, hey, God told me blank, you need to evaluate that. You need to stop and think about that. This is too, This is a sense where wherever we're at on that spectrum, right, all of us still kind of believe that God is speaking to us, right, because he sent us the Holy Spirit. We have a relationship with God. He communicates with us. He still reveals things to us. So anytime we, we say, hey, I think God told me this, or hey, maybe God wants you to do this, we need to stop and then evaluate that. You can't just take that for what it is. Oh, well, if you said God said it, that must be it. Sometimes Christians use that too, don't we? You say, well, God told me this, so now you can't tell me I'm wrong because I said God told me. It's the trump card. I win. <laughs> That's not it. So, how do we evaluate it? Well, there's a number of ways that we evaluate and judge prophecy, or we evaluate and just judge, has God really said that? First thing we do is we compare it to God's word, we go back to the source. I hope that's what you're doing as well. I love even when I'm wrenching verses and I hear pages flipping, or I see I look out and I see you're not looking at me because you're looking at His Word. I'm assuming, hopefully, you're not just tired and falling asleep, but that you're reading the Word and saying, "Well, He said that. Do I see that? Is that here or not?" Well, I think maybe that actually could be another way. That's what we need to do. We need to look at God's Word. Does it contradict anything? Is there something that we declare, or I've declared, and then you go, well, no, I think you forgot about this verse. This verse seems to say that that's not right. Does it line up with Scripture? Is it confirmed with Scripture? If I say, hey, God wants us to do blank, and then you go and read and say, oh, wow, here's a verse where God actually commands us to do that. Yep, seems like that would be something that we should do. It's always a good place to go. And you think of examples where you you have people who will come and think of one who came and said, you know what, God spoke to me and he told me it is okay for me to leave my wife and go marry the woman I'm having an affair with. God told me. You know, Well, let's look at God's word first. That doesn't line up with what God's word says. There's reasons God gives for divorce and that's not a valid one. I think you need to repent. I can tell you definitively that is not God's voice, right? So there, there are times that we can do that and we need to do that. So we should first, we compare it to God's word. We also should compare it to tradition, right? As Protestants, we're we're not like Catholics in that we elevate tradition above the Bible, but tradition is still important. We shouldn't throw it away. We should ask, well, hey, is this something new? Has the church always taught this? Does this line up with what the church has believed for the last 2,000 years? Especially if someone's saying, hey, I've got a new interpretation of this verse. And then you go and you look, you say, wow, no one for the last 2,000 years that we've been writing books and books and books and preachers and preachers and preachers about the Bible, and no one's ever had your opinion before. You can just assume your opinion's wrong then, okay? Somebody should have figured that out already if it's really from God. So that's another place we compare it to tradition other places we do this in community. We should evaluate preaching, evaluate God when people say to speak for God together. Because we all have blind spots, right? There are things when I, if we read the same four verses, there are things that I'm going to see that you won't see. And there's things you're going to see that I don't see. There's going to be blind spots that we all have. And that's why it's important for us to do it together, And so that's the same thing when it comes to this, because what seems obvious from God's word to me might not be as obvious to you. It's also important, this is why we have multiple elders. This is why it's not just me in charge of hearing from God's voice, deciding where our church should be going. Why? Because that's bad. And also it helps if I think, hey guys, if I come to the elders and say, you know what? God told me that this is what we should be doing as a church. Okay, if God really told me that, he can handle telling the other elders that as well. Or at least the majority of them, I think, right? God's big enough that he can do that. And if he doesn't, then I need to say, well, maybe I was wrong then. I guess that wasn't from God. For all really godly men, which they are, who are trying to seek from God, right? That's why we need, we need each other to do this. And the last place we evaluate is we just have to just seek the Holy Spirit's guidance. You just have to pray and rely on him, ask him to illuminate us. Ask him to reveal his word. There are things that we may be blind to. There will be times our ears are plugged and we can't hear his voice and we need him to unplug them so we can listen. So that's that's prophecy. Again, yes, you know, today I think yes, prophecy in some sense is still valid. I think all of us, even if we think tongues and healing and other things have passed away, we all think God still speaks to us. We still all think God reveals things to us, but it's always subordinate to God's word. And we always need to make sure that we are evaluating it. We need to evaluate anytime somebody, even if they don't say they're prophesying, they say, I think God told me this. Look at God's Word. Look at church tradition. Look at, ask other people. And then pray, seek the Lord. We've got to do all those things. Another thing you may notice in, in this section when it comes to evaluating God's Word, there's these little tricky verses in 34. Let all the women keep silent in the churches. They're not permitted to speak. Well, what do we do with that? Well, first, first I'll confess something, and then we'll we'll talk about this. So the first thing is, you know, I grew up, I'm a pastor's kid, right? And I grew up in a parsonage, which if you're unfamiliar with that, means the church owned the house that I lived in, which was great, it was a wonderful blessing. parents had a lot of kids, the church gave us a big house. But so this is one of my favorite verses whenever my mom would make me mad. (laughs) Because I'd say, well, mom, church owns this building, this is really the churches, and scripture says to be silent, so you need to shut up. <laughs> so that was one of my favorite places to go. Um, it didn't really work very well. I usually got, <laughs> got in trouble after that. So that's a misinterpretation of that verse, right? Okay, but I think we also need to be honest that every single one of us, that, there, I can't think of a single church, though. So surely there's one, takes this verse exactly literally. Because I've heard women's voices. I heard some women laughing. I heard we allowed women to talk beforehand or even letting women sing. So unless you're banning that completely, you're saying, okay, men only are going to sing today, then you're, you're, at least, you're letting something happen here, right? So we're all interpreting this verse to mean, well, it doesn't exactly mean that. But what, what does it mean? What, what is going on here? As you know, if you've been with us, as we've gone through 1 Corinthians, Paul has mentioned that women speak in the church. That whole passage we talked about head coverings and tried to uncover that. He said, hey, when women pray and when women prophesy, which whatever prophecy is, it's some kind of talking aloud in the church service. I don't think it's preaching, but it's something where they're declaring that God has spoken. Saying that happens. He's not saying don't allow that. But he is here he says, be quiet. Now what this means, I think if you look at the context... He says keep silent three different times in these passages, right? He says it in 28. He's saying to people speaking in tongues. He's saying if someone's not going to interpret it, keep silent. And he's saying revelation. Okay, if someone else is speaking, keep silent. And then he goes to the women and then he says women keep silent. So it seems like this is a particular time of silence. This isn't just complete silence all the time. At least because that word is used repeatedly that close together, I think it'd be weird if all of a sudden that one is used completely differently. But so what is the part of the service women aren't allowed to speak to? I also think that this might not just be women. The, The Greek word for women and wives is the same word and it's used interchangeably. So you have to use context to figure out which one it's talking to Um, So that, that can make it difficult. Sometimes it's very obvious. Sometimes it's less obvious. I think that this one seems to not just be the women. I think this one should be wives because the very next verse says they need to be quiet. Why? And then ask their husbands later. Well, there's single women in the church. Paul's been talking about the single women. So I think this is Uh, I think this is just talking about them. So when are they not allowed to talk? When are wives not allowed to be speaking? Well, it seems like they are not allowed to speak in the time when the prophecies from God are being evaluated. Because that's what happens right before the prophecy is made. Then everyone needs to weigh what is said. And here, other prophets need to be silent while that's happening. And also, wives, you should be silent while that's happening. Well, why? So why would Paul do that? What I think is happening is Paul is saying, hey, when somebody stands up and says, hey, God told me to do this, I don't think their wife needs to be asking them some follow-up questions in church. Why? Because, well, especially at that culture, even today, that would make everybody a little bit uncomfortable, right? That would be seen as criticizing, especially at that time, criticizing your husband publicly in a big group is a big no-no. It's not very nice generally, but it's also really bad. That's really offensive, really horrible in their, um, their culture. But you can also think, it would be like this. If in the middle of my sermon right now, Brianna, my wife, raises her hand over there and says, uh, are you sure you, you meant that? And I told you you shouldn't say that. You, you weren't supposed to tell that story. You need to do that instead. Okay, all of you would be like, get a little uncomfortable for a second, right? And be like, well, that's not great. <laughs> Maybe, it's probably bad. Okay? Right Now, the problem isn't that Brianna needs to not talk during the service. She sings wonderfully. I'm so glad that I get to listen to her. But the problem is there's a time for her to ask certain questions. And right now is not that time. All right. that's what I think is kind of going on here. And I promise you, on Sundays, Brianna has more time to ask questions and talk about my sermon more than any human being would ever want to, okay? Because <laughs> I ask her to be critical and to help me out. So as soon as we leave, I'm like, okay, did, did this make sense? Did that make sense? What about that? And then she tells me, I told you not to do that. And you did it anyway. Don't you see that you shouldn't have done that? <laughs> yep, you were right. All right, but on the flip side too, for me, it's bad if I stand up here and I'm criticizing my wife publicly. That's also not God honoring to the Lord. Um, so that, I think, is what's going on here. There's different ways to look at it, but, but that is, I think, what makes the most sense of it, that there is a time that women are really empowered to speak that was radical for the time period, and there's times when they're not, which is also different. This is one of the things about God's Word. It makes all of us uncomfortable. It, it never lines up with our systems and what we want to think and what we want to say. Um, I know someone who left a church because they were angry that we weren't obeying this passage because a woman dared to speak because she read a verse publicly and then said something about how it blessed her. I thought, well, women aren't supposed, to, aren't supposed to speak. They're supposed to be silent. So I'm going to leave. You're abandoning the Bible. Okay, that's, that's a little extreme here. But also, like, there's places that women do seem to be limited in church life. So that also bumps up against those who want to say, well, no, there's no restrictions. This is, we can throw it all away. It's all the same now. Well, I, I don't know. I don't fully know what to do with this passage, to be honest. But that's the best way that I can make sense of that. So our last point here, as really goes, goes in with all of it, we need to kind of remember that in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. This isn't me, this is an old common phrase, but I love it, it's so helpful, I'm not going to try and make it any better. There's something we remember, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. One of the things about our church at Tanglewood Bible Fellowship is we are focused on the essentials. And what are the essentials? That, That God is the creator and sustainer of the universe, that he made all of us, that we Sin entered the world because of Adam and Eve's sin and because of my own sin. And so all of us are guilty before God and deserve punishment forever because we are separate from Him. Our our sin has severed that relationship. But Jesus came into the world, was born as a baby, and became fully God and fully man. Well, didn't become God. He was God. became man so that He could not just pay the penalty for our sin, Paid the price that we don't have to pay, but also gave us his own righteousness, gave us new life so that we can be made new and we can follow him and worship him forever. That's the essential. There's some other essentials too around that, but that's what we're united in. We cannot disagree about that and still be believers. You can't tell me, well, Jesus was just a nice teacher and still be a Christian, at least not the same kind of Christian that I am. And say not one at all. you got to take Jesus' word seriously. Or another essential that God's word is authoritative and trustworthy. We have to listen to it. Those are things that we, we can't disagree about and still be on the same team. They're too important. So we have to have unity around the essentials. Now the non-essentials, most of what we've talked about this morning are, well, our tongues, what is tongues? How do you define it? Is it? Should we be doing it all the time? Should we not be doing it? What about prophecy? That, that's a non essential so what does that mean? That means you can have a totally different opinion than I do, and we can still come together and worship Jesus and sing together and have unity. You don't have to leave the church because you don't like what I said about that. If you do, that's, that's a problem, I think. All right. so there's things that we, can, we should have liberty about. But in all of these things, we need to have charity. There's another old word for love. We just talked about love last week. In every disagreement, even, and maybe even more so, those who disagree with us about the essential things, those are people we especially need to love because they need to love of Jesus because they need the gospel. So yes, we need to to be loving and say where we disagree and what's wrong and why they need to repent and follow Jesus, but also we should do that in a loving way. But especially if we can love non-believers, we also need to be loving believers who disagree with us. Even if we all agree on this, we can find plenty of things, plenty of these non-essentials that we're not all on the same page on. But in all of these things, it's important for us to love each other. And a good way to do that is to embrace humility. It's to remember that, you know what? There's a lot I'm probably wrong about. Okay, God's Word is so wonderful and so beautiful. There is also a lot of it. Our God is also infinite. Infinite. And there's so much of theology, even with all of my degrees that I've studied, there are things I feel like I've barely scratched the surface of. There's books of the Bible I feel like I barely understand. There is plenty of non-essentials and places that I am still trying to figure things out or that all of us are and all of us have some different of opinion somewhere. What that means, that's a big bucket. So I am wrong on at least two of those things. Okay, I don't know which two, but I'll give you two. Two of those, God will correct me and I'm wrong on no, there, you admit, there's way more than that. I, I could be totally wrong on a lot of what I've said this morning. That's why it's important for us to check and go back to God's Word. That's why it's important for us to acknowledge the places that God's Word is very clear and the places that, well, it, it's a little less clear. We've got some options on what God may have said here. It's a a good way to make sure that you're loving others, especially those that you're disagreeing about when you start arguing about tongues after the service. is remember, well, you know what? I could be wrong. Maybe you're right. Maybe it is normative. Maybe everyone should be doing it. No, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe no one should have been doing it anymore. What we all need to be doing, again, is in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Invite our worship team to come up as I close this in prayer. Lord, I just thank you that you are a loving God. Um, I I thank you that you are so gracious to us, um, to to people who love to bicker and to fight and to disagree about everything under the sun. Lord, I thank you for your patience to us. Lord, I thank you for your, your grace that you sent your son to save all of us. Lord, I ask that you would Just continue to let this church be a place where your love reigns. Lord, would we really be a place that that is united continually through every generation until you return? United on you and on the essentials of the faith. Would we also be a place that we can disagree with each other freely? We don't feel like we have to get into shouting matches or kick people out the door because they disagree with us on minor things. And also, Lord, would this be a place filled with your love? Would we love each other like you loved us in the way that you died on the cross to save us? Greater love is no one than this, the man who lays down his life for his friends, yet you lay down your life for your enemies. Lord, would you teach us to love not just our friends and our church family, but our enemies and all those outside your kingdom. I just pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Nothing compares to his promises. I just want to read this benediction for you from the end of 1 Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, and my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Go in peace.